Have you ever had things break in production and you're not quite sure what went wrong? I remember the good old days when you had to go use things like tail and grep and then randomly click around the app to try and figure out what broke. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore, thank heaven. All you have to do is go sign up for Airbrake and then install it in your app. Airbrake is really simple. You get a little code that you put into your config file and then you just install the gem. That's it. Really simple to set up. Then what it does is it aggregates all of the exceptions and errors that are thrown by your application so that you don't have to keep track of that anymore. It collects other information from the system as the errors occur, so parameters and things like that, depending on where the error occurs. And one thing that drove me crazy when we first started getting apps like Airbrake doing this work is that you would get 10,000 of the same error, and that doesn't happen anymore. Now they just aggregate it all together. You can go look at the individual errors and see where and what actually happened, but when it comes right down to it, they just let you know, hey, this error occurred 10,000 times, and then you go look at the individual ones so you can get them fixed. It's really easy to install. I already said that, but I just can't stress that enough. <laughs> you take two seconds, you get it installed, and then you're off to the races. When I'm running a business, that time that it saves me is huge. So go check them out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, and that'll let them know that we sent you. But seriously, just make your life easier. If you go check it out at airbreak.io slash rubyrogues, you'll get Airbreak free for 30 days, plus get 50% off the first three months on the startup plan. So go check them out. You can thank me later. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two special guests. We have Daniel Azuma. Hello, everyone. And T, is it Parham? Parham? Parham. Parham. I have to mess up somebody's oh, names or it's not an episode. So uh, do you do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves real quick? Sure. Uh, my name is Daniel Zuma. Uh, I'm a uh, developer at Google. I've uh, been doing Ruby for uh, about oh, 13, 14 years now. And uh, yeah, glad to be here. Hi, I'm T. Parham. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a co-founder and CTO of Neighborland, which is a civic engagement platform for city city agencies and local organizations. And it's also built on Ruby on Rails. Uh, before that, I founded, managed, and led technical projects for a small software consulting company for about eight years. And I've worked with a handful of startups and small companies on a variety of projects over the years. And I've been writing Ruby code for about, about 10 years. And I currently maintain the RGO Gems um, I'm a maintainer on the Hamel team, and I've authored uh, maybe 10 other gems as well. Awesome. Now, Daniel, we had you on a few weeks ago, and T, I'm pretty sure that we've met at some Ruby events. So We did. We sat next to each other at uh, the Boulder Ruby Conference. Oh, and, right. Uh, in forever ago, the only time I went. Uh, forever ago. <laughs> 2010, maybe. That sounds about right. Awesome. Well, we're, we're on to talk about... Uh, what is it? Geospatial. I, I, I'm. I always stumble over this term, but it's essentially uh, like mapping and coordinates and all that good stuff that we have in uh, in Ruby. Do you both want to just kind of give us some idea of what the landscape is here, as far as you know what people are using and 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 how people approach this particular problem? Sure. I guess I can start. Uh, so geospatial, uh, as I see it, is just a, you know, the set of technologies that has to do with uh, uh, location on Earth. Um, uh, so you know there are a number of uh, kind of 
different parts to that. There's uh, uh, there's you know, location, so you know, latitude and longitude, and, and different ways to to express location. So different coordinate systems, uh, computations that you can do uh, to to calculate things like distance, uh, whether things are are uh, close by or, or within uh, polygons or, or you know things like that. Uh, there's uh, kind of the front end. There's uh, rendering, mapping systems. So you, you might be familiar with Google Maps and different kinds of uh, uh, technologies uh, uh, around there to, to visualize these things. Overlaying data on maps. Uh, so you can imagine like a, a weather uh, map or a radar map where you can see uh, what's going on at different locations. There's uh, different kinds of data uh, formats. So you can get access to a lot of different types of uh, uh, spatial data sets, whether those are uh, things like uh, government uh, data sets. So you can see uh, things like census tracts and, you know, and uh, ways to, to categorize uh, locations that way, uh, as well as you know, things like, you know, what's, you know, what's the vegetation that's the, in different locations or what's, uh, you know, what's going on and in, in, uh, in things. And then there's kind of a, a so there's kind of a wide ecosystem of, of data uh, that's available, some from government sources, from, from private sources, you know, lots of different applications that then you can, uh, you, you can do with, uh, with this. Cool. And I have a little bit of experience with this. The, the other question that I'm, I'm wondering about here is, um, T, you mentioned you maintain the RGO gem. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of curious what the history of that is and how, how, you know, how widely it's used and what people are doing with it that way as well. Sure. So Daniel is the uh, original author of the RGO gem. So oh. I took over the maintenance of RGO and the entire family of gems. There are about uh, 10 or so, uh, 10 or so gems that are in use. Uh, the most popular ones um, are RGO itself. And then the uh, active record post post gis adapter, which mm. makes it easier to makes it easy to work with the post gis extension uh, on Postgres within Rails, and there are a couple other ones as well. The there's the GeoJSON gem, which makes it easy to uh, encode and decode to the GeoJSON standard. So maybe we should back up a little bit and talk sort of specifically about the, you know, what are the, what does RGO do? Mm -hmm. I, I can start. I didn't write it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so any problems you have are all Daniel's fault. I'm just, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just take the blame for it these days. <laughs> Essentially, the, it, there are classes to represent basic geometries, like the simplest one being a point, but from a point you can build uh, line strings, polygons, um, and other interesting things like multi multi points, multi line strings, multi polygons, and geometry collections, which are probably lesser lesser used uh, mm -hmm. than the basic you know point line string and polygon types. And then once you have those basic types, you can do operations. Uh, on those things like, do these two lines intersect? Does this polygon touch this polygon? Um, do these? Does this line cross this polygon? Is this point within within this polygon? So there are um, sort of basic. Those are the basic geospatial operations that um, 
RGO makes makes it a little easier to do. It should be uh, should be clarified that uh, we. Uh, these uh, these types uh, points polygons they're they're actually very standard uh, within mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of geospatial technology. There's uh, uh, RGO implements a specification uh, called uh, simple features, uh, which is kind of an open uh, uh, an open specification uh, defining types of uh, uh, types of shapes uh, that are useful to work with, as well as uh, operations uh, a set of operations that can be used. Uh, uh, Done on them, uh, so there are there are implementations of the spec in other languages. Uh, there's uh, there's a, uh, a commonly used one in C called Geos, uh, uh, and then there's there's uh, implementations in Java and Python and, and, and different languages. RGO is uh, uh, an implementation of this in Ruby, uh, and it actually it actually wraps the uh, the C uh, implementation, the Geos implementation, because okay. uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the operations uh, can get difficult, like you know, calculating the intersection of, uh, of polygons. Uh, is, you know, I mean, you can do it uh, if, you, if, if you have enough, uh, uh, I guess, knowledge of kind of the computational geometry, uh, but it can get tedious. Uh, uh, and so we, we, we actually wrap all of this, we wrap the C implementation of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, my experience with a lot of this stuff comes, of course, this was what seven years ago. Um, I worked for a company called Public Engines, and we we had a number of products. Uh, the one that most people in the public would be familiar with is CrimeReports.com, and so uh, I got I was lucky, and I was the one that got saddled with all of the geospatial stuff for our back end. And one, a lot of people I don't think realize, you know, just how much this stuff gets used. So, for example, um, yeah, we were figuring out. Um, is the is this point inside of a polygon? And when we're talking about a polygon, uh, just to give people kind of a visual rep representation of what that is, and you draw a shape on a map so you can like outline your neighborhood or you can outline a county or a state or a city. Um, and we also dealt with some multi multiple polygon things because some of the law enforcement agencies we dealt with um, had jurisdictions over islands and things like that. And so when we're talking about polygons, it sounds really abstract, but really it's just a shape on a map. And you see that anyway, if you look at Google Maps, you know, it's the the shape of the, you know, the block or the neighborhood or the island or the street or the peninsula or whatever it is you're looking at. And um, when you really start to think about that, then it becomes real. It's like, oh, OK, so in what ways can I care about the geometry of this area? And it, it gets really interesting really quickly. So, you know, is it within uh, this group's jurisdiction or, you know, like. For, for me, it was, oh, well, this is kind of the outline of my neighborhood, you know, where where I interact with people. So, you know, what crimes happen within my neighborhood? And those are the kinds of things that we were looking at. Um, another thing that I ran into when I was doing this was that a lot of um, the law enforcement agencies used coordinate systems that were based around their local area because they didn't care about worldwide. And so latitude, longitude were these really big numbers that were hard to reason about and weren't fine-grained enough to really tell them where things were occurring. And so I had to translate that from whatever their coordinate system was to latitude, longitude, and a lot of the a lot of the work there centered around that. So there, there are a lot of different interesting aspects of this that um, you know I don't think people really understand. And at the same time, um, you know the the I, I kind of wanted to draw that connection between you know the polygons and the lines and everything else with you know the these are real things on a real map, 
and they represent actual areas where people live, work, and, you know, live their lives. So anyway, I kind of rambled there for a minute, but yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. So I look at I look at the gem that you've created, and Daniel, I'm looking at some of the the documents that you have in there. Uh, one of them is a an introduction to spatial programming with RGO, written back in 2011. Now, it is an insanely well written document explaining all about the innards of geo and the different types of uh, the different types of data uh, this uh, data that uh, you mentioned earlier, the spatial data types. What leads somebody to delve so deeply into this very niche uh, niche field and create a library in Ruby for it. Uh, what, what drove you to create this? And also, why Ruby? Well, I guess, uh, as with many of these kinds of things, it was out of necessity. Uh, uh, at the time, I was, uh, I was working at a Ruby startup, uh, uh, which was uh, at the time called GeoPage. Uh, we uh, we had done uh, actually this this, uh, this team and I had done a, a, a kind of a series of, uh, of of startups all since kind of gone by the wayside. But uh, uh, at this time uh, we were uh, we were looking at uh, we were looking at location uh, and, and different things that we can uh, do uh, uh, do with location. So some like some of our products were. Uh, like hotel concierge, uh, where you know you could you could find uh, different things uh, that are you know that are around you in, in, uh, around the hotel, and so so we, we were dealing with a lot of uh, data, um, uh, collecting a lot of data, uh, uh, location type of data, uh, analyzing a, a lot of location type of data. So not not only you know where things are, but how to get to places, uh, what what different. Uh, Areas around a hotel are easier to get to versus harder to get to, so there's there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of analysis and uh, uh, and then when we had to uh, render this data, so we we had you know uh, millions of uh, of uh, points in a database, and now we want to render that on a map. Well, we have to be able to search for what's nearby and you know do so do things like uh, uh, filtering of data by by area or by or by location, uh, which is uh, not necessarily something that a lot of databases uh, do very well on their own. You know, that's why we have things like PostGIS, which is uh, which which T uh, talked about. Uh, so there's a so there are a lot of this uh, uh, there are a lot of these this functionality that uh, we were trying to build, and we had done uh, we we were a Ruby shop. Uh, we we had done earlier products uh, in Ruby on Rails, uh, and so we were trying to build this uh, this also in Ruby and. Uh, at the time, there were some gems uh, that did some things uh, uh, related to this, but they uh, they weren't uh, they weren't really maintained very well, uh, and uh, there was a lot of functionality that uh, that was missing. I believe that uh, uh, some of the the maintainers you know, had, had you know, particular problems that they were trying to solve, uh, but we had kind of a, a wide variety of things that we were trying to solve. So I, I was, I, I was kind of stuck. I, I, uh, I was trying to use some of these gems, and so we were, we were missing a lot of functionality. And so I did, I just did a bunch of research online, uh, found things like the, 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 uh, the spec, the, the, the simple feature spec, and, and started to see what, uh, what the rest of the industry is doing uh, uh, when they're implementing uh, these types of applications. So that's kind of where where RGO came from. It's like, well, Java has uh, you know a nice library that does all these things. Where's Ruby's library? Uh, and so, 
you know, that's, that's, that's where our geo came from. So that document, I actually haven't uh, looked at that for many years now. Uh, as you said, it was written back. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good one. So, so. I, I went back in your history and I see that you had uh, something like 300 some odd commits over the, over the past, um, looks like uh, 10 or eight years. And honestly, your very first commit is, uh, it's always interesting to me because it looks like your first commit message is not like initial commit, it is initial migration to Git. So obviously you've been working on this probably in SVN or something prior to moving it into, into GitHub. Um, at what point during the life cycle of, not the life cycle, during the, 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 the life of this project, did you see that it started to gain more traction outside? Because typically on an open source project, initially it's like very much scratching your own itch. And then eventually your usage uh, becomes smaller in the global scale of, of everybody using it. At what point did you see that it started becoming a, a default or de facto uh, uh, the go-to for the Ruby developers in, in, uh, in geospatial development? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because it, that, I, I don't think that really happened uh, until uh, after I, actually, I had actually kind of left this, uh, this space. Uh, so. you were the you were you were the problem Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just uh, needed tea that's all we needed yep. yeah uh so so back then uh i you know we we had decided well you know let's let's open source this this might be useful to uh, to other people so we did that uh and uh, uh i actually did a, a RailsConf talk on it i did a bunch of blog posts on it to, to kind of you know introduce the, the libraries and say hey you know here's here's some things that you can use if you're doing this in ruby uh, and there was some interest uh, at the time, but uh, uh, it didn't seem like a lot. I think most people who went into doing these applications just kind of by default went to went to Python or went to some other language. And so later on, I actually uh, moved off of that startup and went to uh, I joined Google and, and went into other things. And uh, and so I wasn't really uh, maintaining the libraries as much. And, and eventually, uh, I had uh, T come and and, uh, and take over maintenance. But it was around that time that uh, that uh, I guess uh, you know it, it takes time to kind of get uh, get kind of start getting critical mass of, of uh, interest in in, uh, uh, in something. So it seems like it was around that time that uh, there there was a lot more users. And uh, so I think T can probably talk a little bit more about what uh, uh, you know, who's using it now and what. I just want to thank you for not making me feel dumb because if you were if you released it open source about when you gave that talk. That was two years after I had written about half the stuff that you said is in that gem myself. I was like, oh man, where was, you know, did I just miss this when I was doing it? And yeah, not, not quite the case. So yeah. So T, when did you get involved? Yeah. So I, I too got involved uh, out of necessity. We were using the active record post just adapter and we upgraded to, I think it was rails four, two, I guess. And the, the innards of active model changed significantly and the, the adapter didn't work. And so it was kind of the last thing that I needed, the last gem that I needed to work in order to do the Rails 4.2 upgrade. And, um, you know, I looked into, looked into the adapter and I said, Hey, I can, I can figure this out now. I'll, uh, start working on it. And, and at, that, at this time I had already kind of, you know, gone, gotten off uh, the gem. So I, so I, you know, T had uh, uh, requested, "Hey, this is this this is a this is a problem. Can you, can you help solve it?" And I, and you know, I was kind of not as responsive as I probably should should have been. <laughs> it's sure. hard. It's hard to maintain, yeah. right? It, it's the developer dilemma. Um, you know, you got to go to the place that actually provides food for your family over everything else. 
right? It's it's free open source software. So I said, hey, I'll I'll uh, you know I'll start work. I'll, I just started working on it, and um, you know, probably naively thought, hey, this can't be that hard to fix. And then you know, <laughs> that's always the story, isn't it, with open source? Oh, that's not so, that hard. Yeah, when, when you started, you had a full head of hair, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very bald on the radio as well. <laughs> yes, you are magnificently bald. I love it. So anyway, I, I, you know, I, what happened was I did the work, miraculously wrangled Active Record into behavior and got it to uh, work on Rails 4.2. And then as I got into it, it was, it was kind of a lot of work. And as I often do, just kind of went bonkers on fixing a bunch of other things or changing some style or making a lot of updates that were, you know, as a, maybe as a, a pull request to a, to a library might be uh, ordinarily rejected or, you know, viewed as unnecessary overreach or just, this should be a different PR. This should be eight PRs. Um, and so it had, the work had forked, um, quite a bit and, for one thing, I didn't, you know, Daniel wasn't really working on it a lot and I didn't, I wasn't sure if it would get pulled back into the main adapter and I ended up just releasing it as a gem so that I could um, install it myself. And then I responded on the issue that, Hey, I, you know, I did all this work and it's in another fork and I just renamed the gem since I have no idea if this will work on in general. And then Daniel said, you know, Hey, this looks pretty good. Like we should, you should, we should merge this back into the into the main project and there's already a bunch of people using it. It's kind of confusing to have two different adapters. I agreed. And then he, you know, mentioned that it wasn't really his, he didn't have a, a lot of time to focus on it anymore. And maybe I fooled him into uh, thinking I had some clue of what I was doing. And he <laughs> uh, asked me to take over the, the maintenance of, of all the RGO gems. How, how many are there? Probably 10. I mean, I'd say there are, you know, five or six that are, there were eight, yeah, ten, there, ten there were eight that I uh, originally wrote since they're, they're, I think, you know, we split out a couple more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the RGO, the post-juice adapter and the RGO GeoJSON are the most used. There's sort of an intermediate gem called RGO Active Record that does some of the common Active Record stuff for not just post-juice, but for, um, there's a MySQL 2 spatial adapter and there's a spatial light adapter, but I have nothing to do with those anymore. And there is someone who maintains the MySQL 2 spatial adapter, but there's not a ton of work being done with that. And then I, I recently pulled out the Proj 4, which is a projection library. I pulled that, I extracted that functionality out of the RGO gem so that you don't have to install it if you mm -hmm. don't uh, reproject coordinates, which most people probably don't. Um, so it's one less thing to, to deal with when installing the gym. So back to the Ruby question, I know that um, every language has its own, its own pros and cons. Um, you know, we look at Python and it seems like the Python's an excellent library for, for math. Um, where does Ruby shine when it comes to a geospatial development? Where, where does it lack? Like, where does it sit on, like, cause you compared it earlier to Java, uh, uh, Daniel, where you said that you, you, there was something for Java, but not for, for Ruby. Uh, well, of all of the solutions that you're aware of out there, where does Ruby fit in as far as like, wow, it's super 
powerful and, and easy to use Ruby over other languages? Or is there any difference at all, would you say? Yeah, so for specifically for geospatial, uh, I mean, Ruby is not necessarily the fastest language for, you know, for a lot of mathematical computation, uh, although, uh, to be honest, neither is Python, really. Uh, uh, but I, I think that uh, uh, definitely as a, uh, uh, I guess, as a community or as a, as a language uh, ecosystem, uh, Python uh, and, and, and Java and some of the other languages have more embraced, uh, say, mathematical or scientific computing. Uh, some extent, so that there, there's a lot more uh, in that community where they they wrap you know C functionality to you know to do these sorts of things, and it's much more kind of embedded uh, in that community. You 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 think about oh, I, I want to do scientific computing, I'll just go to Python. It's, it's 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 associated with that, and not so much with Ruby. I think Ruby has uh, tended to go a different direction uh, uh, in general. We've you know we, we've you know, uh, our, you know, our big thing was uh, things like Rails, uh, you know, so ease of ease of web development. Uh, uh, things like DevOps, I think, uh, have uh, kind of gravitated towards Ruby for uh, for whatever reason. So you know, we have, you know, tools like Puppets and tools like Capistrano, and you know, we we our star community as as Rubyists have have kind of gravitated in those directions, and not so much in the uh, for for geospatial. Um, uh, I don't know. I think uh, at, at the time I was releasing uh, RGO, I was I, I was uh, I, I kind of had it in my mind that uh, you know uh, maybe to, to try to work to change that to see if uh, you know, we could expand uh, the kinds of things that uh, Ruby uh, is traditionally known for, is traditionally good at, uh, and maybe by uh, producing some good libraries or, or some or we could uh, you know, we could help that happen. But you know, I I don't know. It's it's it seems like you know, well, each language community has their own personality and uh, and and uh, things that we do in our, in that community, and maybe that's kind of what how it's always how how it always is. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code RubyRogues2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code, again, is RubyRogues2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com careers to see their available positions. I think a lot of it depends on the cases, too. When, and just to speak specifically to the, the math question, yeah, Python outsources a lot of that to C libraries. There's a C library that sits underneath uh, SciPy or whatever it's called that, uh, you know, does all the heavy lifting for that library. And that's why it's uh, as fast as it is or, or as efficient as it is is because, you know, the Python VM isn't actually doing a lot of the lifting there. And you, I've, I've seen other projects where people have actually written layers over the top of that with whatever core language they're using and they're just hitting those same bindings that python binds to and you know so so there is the possibility of, of borrowing from that i mean that's why we're talking about rgo wrapping over like geos 
is because then we can outsource to something that, you know, is compiled and runs more quickly than, than Ruby. Um, the other thing is, is that unless you need the edge cases that aren't implemented in something like RGO, I think it matters less what language you're in. And so, you know, when, when there's an implementation out there that is in C or C, C++ or Rust or something else that we can bind to from Ruby, um, it just opens up all the possibilities for any programming community to attach to it, um, either through FFI or some other system. So, you know, uh, it, it, it's definitely interesting to see what's been implemented. But um, I, I think a lot of times the possibility is there, even if we don't have it yet. And I think that Daniel made an excellent uh, decision in wrapping the GIOS, which it stands for Geometry Engine Open Source, which is mm -hmm. kind of weird. But that is, uh, I think, interestingly, that's the C library that um, PostGIS actually uses under the hood. Oh, really? Um, mm -hmm. And PostGIS also uses the Proj4 library, which RGO also wraps as well. So there are, I think leveraging those standards is an excellent decision. And, you know, it should be pretty darn fast. One of the, you, you asked earlier, what are the, what are people using this for? And, and, and Daniel and I spoke a few weeks ago and we asked each other that question. And, you know, the answer was, I don't know, besides our own personal uses. Um, and so I actually opened an issue and ask people, hey, who's, who's using this thing? Um, uh, I mean, I, I know that Secret uh, Fix was or is still using RGO since their technology director has contributed to the, to the project. I think interestingly, I heard that Digital Globe, which is a satellite imagery company, um, is using RGO. That was one of the, that was probably the most interesting response. Um, what do they do? So they launch satellites and uh, collect and sell satellite imagery and um, analysis software, I think. I'm not very familiar with them, but I did read a blog post that they recently, this is kind of interesting, they um, used a new Amazon service called AWS Snowball, which is Amazon drives a container to your building in a like 18 wheeler tractor trailer size <laughs> enclosure uh. and you can load all your data onto aws that way when you have um I, I think they have on the order of hundreds of thousands of terabytes of satellite images um which was pretty mind-blowing to me that they're using one of their developers said that they used uh rgo to comb through their image database that's cool wow ruby in yeah. space 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome and there so are what, a few, and there are a few just to sort of finish that thought there are a few like scientific apps that are um using using rgo as well there's one called taxon works which is um biodiversity informatics it's a mouthful but it sounds awesome um so yeah, I mean, I think in general, it's kind of, you know, it's funny, like we write this open source software and then like, who's actually using it? Like, I don't know. We have like the download statistics from Ruby gems, which, mm -hmm. you know, are probably 95% CI servers, but it's hard to know. So I want to start a company and figure that out. <laughs> nice. I remember 
I remember back when uh, uh, back when I was first uh, maintaining RGO, one of the earliest, uh, some of the earliest uh, companies that actually uh, uh, contacted me and talked and talked to me about uh, features and things were were actually uh, uh, some of the media companies, uh, 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 newspapers and, and, and things that were. Uh, so there were there were some there were, there were some media companies as well. I don't know if they're still using it. It's been a number of years since I've uh, uh, talked to these people, but. So where do you think it's going now that uh, you've, you've, you have, you know, almost a decade of experience behind this? Where do you see uh, the library going and where do you see uh, applications going when it comes to location tracking and location parsing and all that? Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> I see nothing. It's just black. <laughs> well, it, I mean, no, it is a field that, uh, you know, is, I don't know if it's, like all the problems are solved, but I mean, mapping is pretty well understood. So it's, it, you know, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see where we do wind up though. Yeah. There's plenty of, 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 of unsolved and hard problems out there for sure. I mean, I almost, you know, anything that anything in the real world has a, that has a, has a spatial component, you're going to have to mm-hmm. um, take that into consideration. So um, I mean, in terms of the, the future for the, of, of the project, um, you know, I'd like to welcome anyone who has any knowledge or interest in this topic to uh, contribute and become part of the organization or whatever, do your own thing and do something else. Um, you know, this could be a tangent into broader topics on open source software in general, but I mean, I think it's interesting that Daniel did this incredible work to create this this project and made a lot of great decisions for these projects, really. And I mean, for me, it's 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 a volunteer project. I I sort of work on it when I have time. And what motivates you to do that? Tea's just cool. Maintaining a large project is not easy. So, what makes you get in and keep doing that instead of saying, you know what, let's look for another maintainer, or hopefully somebody else will take it over and just let it ride. That's a great question. Um, I ask myself that question a lot. Mike Parham, no relation to me, was. Uh, <laughs> I, I would tell people. I would tell people there's definite relation. Man. <laughs> there's some street cred that comes with that name. <laughs> um, he, he recently uh, spoke at the Boulder Ruby Night and just this past week, and um, you know, talked about how he turned Sidekick into a full time job. He turned an open source project into a full time job, and that was fascinating to me. And I mean, I think that those types of models or more funding for open source projects and more financial support, those types of things are, are, are emerging and they're often, you know, things like Ruby together. Um, and there are other, there are, they usually take the form of foundations, right? I mean, there's usually some sort of consortium of companies decide to fund things and make it, make it possible for people to work on them and get paid for, for those projects. And I think there should be more of that. I don't really have an answer in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you turn an open source project into something that financially makes sense for you? I think it's hard. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it just becomes crazy and they're, they want to get out. So I've tried to personally, I've tried to think of it as a volunteering project and do do what I can and, and work on it, work on things for fun. And, and, you know, ultimately most people get into using and creating open source software to solve their own problems and to make their own software work. And that's, 
that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah, it makes sense. And it is. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people across all kinds of different open source communities. And yeah, I've talked to a few people that work on some very large, very widely used projects that are like, you know, what, I'm I'm not getting paid on this. It's really hard to keep going on it. And so, yeah, just to see that, you know what, I started out working on my own, you know, scratching my own itch. And, you know, now I get to contribute in these ways that mean something to me. I, I think that's kind of the core and the essence of why a lot of people do open source. It's a fascinating topic. I'm actually um, speaking on that very topic at the upcoming Ruby Hack Conference, which is uh, different ways to approach funding for open source. So I'm, I'm very passionate about that topic myself. But yeah, I agree. There's I, there's got to be more motivation than just I need I need this working for me because eventually yeah. you won't need it working for you because it'll be working right. And then you got to have another another motivation behind it aside from just yeah I want to do this because it's the right thing to do because honestly the right thing to do is provide you know food for your family and, and that's what that's what it comes down to. But anyway, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox here because I, I could probably rant for five mm -hmm. hours on the topic. Um, yeah, one one thing that I want to jump in here with with the mapping is. Um, one, one place that I see mapping and geospatial um, work in code going is that, you know, as far as like putting points on a map, you know, drawing polygons, um, all, all, a lot of that other stuff, um, as I said before, a lot of those problems are solved, at least for the general cases that most people are going to run across. And what I think is really going to happen next is that people are going to want to correlate this data with other things that they have. You know, everything's becoming more connected. We're out there in the world where we have, you know, our smartphone on us, which is collecting geospatial data. Um, we have uh, areas of concern, you know, be it, you know, maybe a warehouse or an office building or schools or whatever, where, you know, we can track people through it. And, you know, and then we have all of the other things that people post to social media or take pictures or things like that. And the place that I see things going um, mostly rel uh, relies on people being able to correlate what they've done and what they're doing with geospatial data. Uh, and so I wonder a little bit, how, how do we make that kind of computing easier so that we can actually look at things and say, okay, these are the things that we know happened and here are the locations that we know they happened in, you know, and, and find meaning in that, if that makes any sense. Wise words. <laughs> very, very wisdomous. I just wonder how, you know, is there, is there an easy way to make those connections or are the tools already there? I, I mean, everybody. I think that there are certainly a whole lot of tools for answering uh, simple problems. Mm -hmm. um, quote simple. I mean, they're, they're right. These, these things are, you know, we can get into projections and um, what happens when you get close to the poles versus, um, you know, what about, altitude what about three-dimensional things I mean, these problems are not are not simple they're right they're they're complicated and and as you mentioned there is just more and more and more more data with spatial information tied to it so i mean i've been fascinated uh, by geospatial technology my whole life i sort of it was sort of the first topic that really one of the first serious topics that really interested me in software development so there's no limit. I mean, there's there's fascinating questions like what about projections of coordinates on other planets? Other planets are shaped differently. Are we going to Mars? Like, what's the what coordinate system should we use for mapping Mars? Right? Oh yeah. So there, there there's there's no limit to uh, the applications of, of geospatial technology. I guess I if I had to put on my fifty thousand foot hat for a moment. 
Well, the other thing is, yeah. is that you, yes. you mentioned that Mars is not like Earth, you know, but how do we help people actually understand that at the same time? I mean, part part of it is we've got this data and how do we look at it? And the other part is how do we help people understand it? I, I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Well, what I see is I see that people are telling their story online and, you know, the same thing, you know, we go to Mars, we have the Mars rover, you know, whatever, whatever else we, you know, happen to put on Mars, be it people or machines. You know, so even under those circumstances, as it moves around, you know, how do we convey that story? So it's not just, oh, we found these kinds of rocks on Mars, but actual, you know, this is this is what the Mars rover encountered. Here's the the narrative that we can give to it. Here's, you know, some of the historical narrative that we can give to a place. It, it seems like places don't mean anything without context. And so I, I like the idea of having these tools, but then making it easy to add the context. Yeah, I don't think that. Uh, I mean, the, the tools themselves are you know, they're I mean, they're they're just tools. They're one component mm -hmm. of uh, this this wider narrative that uh, uh, that you're talking about. And uh, you know, and and so you know, for for some applications, you know, we need to to deal with the fact that well, Mars is shaped different than Earth, and uh, and, and there's maybe some different mathematics that will have to go into it. And uh, uh, but then when as you know, as we look at context, uh, I think it's uh, uh, we, we deal more and more with uh, the fact that uh, uh, narrative data is it's it's messy. It's uh, it, yeah. it, it's it's not just uh, oh let's let's put a let's put a you know long coordinate on it and call it good. Mm -hmm. uh, you know it's not it's it's not quantitative. It's it's there's there's much more you know a connection to what's what people think or feel or what's what's culturally relevant about what's going on and uh, uh, you know and and so. Uh, and so location can be a part of that. Uh, you know, you're, you're, if you're in this city versus that city versus or this neighborhood versus that neighborhood, then something can mean to mean something differently. And that can, that can enrich, uh, what's going on, but it's, it's just, it's one voice in, in, uh, in, in the, in the entire story. That makes sense. It's, it's also interesting. You mentioned that it's one voice in the entire story. And I mean, that's true. You know, my, my experience is mostly with law enforcement data. And they look at that data completely different from me who lives in the neighborhood that the data shows up in. And so, yeah, the, the context is different for different people. And, and that does make it hard to make it meaningful for everybody, you know, depending on what, what the circumstances are and where we're actually looking at. I think that's a good example of, of context, Chuck. I mean, the, you think about law enforcement data, you as a resident want to know, are you and your family safe? Are there trends that are happening in my in your neighborhood that you should be aware of for personal safety it's pretty important whereas the police department i mean they, they certainly want to keep everyone safe as well but they're also they have a slightly different uh take on things uh, in that they're looking at the community's uh response to their to their work really this is the most important thing to them i mean they certainly want to i mean certainly they their first priority is to keep everyone mm -hmm. everyone safe as well but they're also concerned with, with 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 sentiment as well so i mean i think that's very important for everyone as software developers to keep you know to have that context and have the the perspective of you know be, to be aware of what questions are we are we answering what, what lens are we looking at things through Yep. Yeah, it's just an area that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, what's the larger story with our soft software? And so anyway, are there any topics that we should have jumped on that we didn't before we get to our picks? 
I'm going to take that brief silence as a no. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Eric, do you want to start us off with picks? Hey, when it comes to health, you probably have some of the same disqualifications that I do. You sit all day, you run a busy life, and when you do make it to the gym, the only thing you're really qualified to do is turn the treadmill on. I was an athlete in high school, and so I could have thrown swimming in the mix, but that was about it. And I didn't really know what to do when I decided that I needed to get my health under control, especially since I have type 2 diabetes and I want to be around for my kids. So I contacted my friend JC over at DevLifts, and DevLifts, they did me a huge, huge, huge favor. Sure, it's a paid service, but what they did is they gave me a workout program. They also gave me some eating guidelines, and they have a Slack room where I can go and I can ask questions, and they give weekly challenges on things that I need to do differently. I really, really love it. So if you're looking for a way to get into shape, you're looking for a way to improve your health, then go check them out at devlifts.io. That's D-E-V-L-I-F-T-S dot I-O. Yeah, I have a couple of picks. The first one is uh, something that I've found very, very cool. It's an email client that allows me to do many things. Um, The email client is called Polymail, and it's a a subscription-based service. But what makes it really cool is several things. One of them is it gives you insights into the people who are sending you uh, sending you emails or you send them emails and you can keep notes directly on that individual. And so if you're having conversations on the phone or anything, you can actually log those conversations in the notes and it'll stay with that individual. And you can also view all, all, uh, all transactions with that person through just by clicking on their contact. Um, it also has... Um, email open tracking, and it has the ability to create campaigns. So if I need to send out an email to 100 people that where I can just swap out the variables, like here's your name, this and that, then you can do that. It's very, very powerful if you're running a, if you're running a small business, mid-sized business. It also has the ability to share, so you can create teams in it. Anyway, uh, I'm not getting paid to share this or anything like that, but I've been looking for something like this for a long time um, for, for a code sponsor. And that leads me to my second pick. Now, by the time this airs, I believe Code Sponsor should be live. Uh, Code Sponsor is, is it's a platform that allows software developers who are working on open source to be able to make money on the side without having to change what they do. And that's kind of, T, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. But as a developer, if you want to make serious money, oftentimes what you have to do is change your role as a developer. Either you have to become a software maintainer, uh, not a maintainer, but a, a support line, basically tech support for that project and sell tech support. Or you have to turn it into a business such as Mike Parham did that we talked about. Um, so what code sponsor allows for is to create, um, a, an avenue of funding for that project or for the individual developer through ethical advertising. And, uh, we had a great six month run between July and December. We ran into some issues. We're relaunching in April and I'm really excited for that CodeSponsor.io. Awesome. I'm just going to plus one code sponsor. I mean, any way that we can support the people who basically make our jobs easier without getting paid directly for it. I mean, folks, let's do it. Let's get the word out and let's make sure that people know that they can get help uh, to get this done. I mean, um, you know, Eric's doing this um, and it's it's a terrific effort. And, you know, the more that we can do to support the people who are supporting us um, and under any circumstances, you know, be it this or, you know, any of the number of ways we have of d- contributing directly to a project. I mean, let's do it. I've talked to a number of people um, and, and I'm, I'm just going to take my time for picks and I'm just going to back Eric up here a little bit. Um, I took a trip last November to New York City and wound up having dinner with um, a couple of people. Um, 
Michael Jackson, who does React training and a maintainer who asked me not to share his name, but he maintains a large project that's used across um, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of JavaScript projects. And, uh, you know, he, he works a full-time job and then he works another full-time job to maintain this software that everybody uses. And he's saying, you know what, it'd be really nice if I could just go full-time on this project because it takes up so much of my time. And I know that there are other people out there that are working on projects that a lot of people use. And, you know, they, they just don't have a great way to get supported. And, you know, a lot of people don't see the need or have the means to donate. And so if we can find some of these other ways and help them out by, you know, exposing them to ideas like Code Sponsor, and then, you know, helping, um, you know, if your company is interested in reaching developers, you know, having them look at Code Sponsor as an avenue for advertising or anything like that. Um, you know, the bigger the pot is there, the, the more that we can help these folks out. And so, you know, if you want to go to Open Collective and donate to it, great. If you want to, you know, have your company approach Code Sponsor, great. If you want to find some other way to support them, either by helping do support or answer questions on their issues or anything like that, do it. Um, you know, I just, I worry sometimes that some of these tools are just going to wind up, you know, we, we go through three or four people that crash and burn on a project and then somebody else goes and picks it up because nobody else is doing it and then they crash and burn on it next. And you know what? Um... It, for one, it just doesn't seem right. And for another, it's, you know, it's just kind of a reality that we deal with in open source that we really shouldn't have to. So anyway, um, those are kind of my thoughts. And I'm hoping that I can give you some ideas, you know, even if you're not an open source person that wants to put code sponsor on their stuff, you know, maybe you can help find a, an advertiser or, you know, go donate on open collective or something, you know, even if it's $5 one time, you know, that'll add up. So anyway, um, Plus one on Eric's pick, and I'm really excited to see where Code Sponsor goes from here. Um, Daniel, what are your picks? Yeah, uh, I have a couple of picks, and I, I actually suspect that uh, they they may have been picked before because uh, I actually may have heard about them myself first from <laughs> from other people's picks uh, you know, some years ago. But uh, uh, but anyway, they're they're they both seem uh, they're both things I've been thinking about recently. One uh, one is uh, Project Euler, uh, which uh, uh, is a uh, it's it's one of those kind of online uh, you know uh, problem solving uh, uh, sites where they you know, there there are now uh, over six hundred uh, problems that uh, that you can solve Dif different most 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 having to do with math uh, number of number theory uh, problems some geometry some kind of different uh, aspects of uh, computer science uh, but you can you can use uh, whatever programming uh, language uh, you want and and, uh, uh, and solve them and I I think especially as uh, I've been Doing things like RGO, uh, which uh, uh, when I was working on it, uh, they're exercising uh, some computer science and some math and, and some algorithms uh, uh, that uh, I not I wouldn't normally uh, have to deal with uh, just doing, uh, I guess, typical web development. Uh, uh, and so, uh, just having uh, having having the, the chance to to flex those muscles, I think, and uh, kind of exercise those uh, uh, those muscles. Uh, uh, has been uh, has been has been good for me uh, as as a developer, and it's been a lot of fun as well. Uh, just uh, every week or so, I'll, I'll just pick up a pro problem and, and and start working on it. And I've been I've been doing most of my problems in Elixir uh, recently because that's a language that I've been uh, trying to learn myself. And so so one's Project Euler. The other is not technical. I I'm pretty sure I heard about this as a as a pick on, on one of your shows, uh, Chuck. It's a uh, when I was growing up in the '80s, uh, 
there was a comic strip called Bloom County uh, that was uh, uh, really popular uh, in the late 80s. Uh, it, uh, it kind of ended sometime in the 90s, uh, early 90s or something like that. Uh, but just, uh, I think, about two years ago, it popped up again uh, online. Uh, uh, so there's a there's it's there's a Facebook page and the the, the original uh, uh, comic strip author uh, 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 kind of re revived it and uh, I heard about it pretty early on I've been following it and it is if anything uh, even more funny than it was uh, was back in the 80s when it was uh, it was incredibly popular back then and I think especially nowadays this you know, this has been kind of a a difficult time for a lot of us in the in, in the country and in, in the U.S., with uh, you know, complicated things happening politically, comp complicated things happening socially, and kind of having a, having an uh, an outlet to kind of laugh about uh, uh, laugh about things uh, has has been kind of a it's it's been nice to have that kind of uh, yeah outlet or community. So Bloom County uh, online it's on it's on Facebook. Uh, the, the comics author is uh, Berkeley Breathed, uh, so you can find that, and uh, I'm sure there'll be links in the show notes. Awesome. T, what are your picks? Love it. Okay, I've got a, several picks. I'll just throw them out there. Um, the first few are geospatial related. There's a new company called Observable, which is founded by Mos Mike Bostock, the creator of the D3 library and formerly of the New York Times, and also Tom McWright, who worked at Mapbox and on the OpenStreetMap editor and has also authored a bunch of interesting geospatial work online. Um, so that's observable, observablehq.com. They've got, they've got a maps collection, which is pretty cool there, uh, where you can, uh, play around with, with spatial data and do your own data visualizations and data analysis immediately on, on online. It's pretty cool. There's uh let's see, mapschool.io is a, is a good resource for anyone who wants to is just getting started with spatial technology geojson.io is a really simple mapping site that i use quite often to do things like sketch out a polygon and capture the coordinates of it so for rough rough data sketching and just quickly visualizing uh, and importing geojson it's a pretty cool site i read a book recently called the Memory Illusion by Julia Shaw, which is a pretty fascinating take. Uh, it's by someone who studies memory about essentially the mechanics of creating and restoring memories and how your memories are, how your memories are malleable. And an awesome quote from her is, uh, all of your memories, even those that you most cherish, are prone to corruption and distortion. So that's a pretty fascinating book. My last one I'll take... Uh, Thomas Brinkman is a, he's a sound artist and minimal techno producer, producer who is, I've been a big fan of for a long time. And he just released um, like a multi CD or multi album uh, retrospective called Retrospective. It's kind of like a 20 year greatest hits. So if you want to get in the zone with some techno and bang out some code, it's a pretty awesome music. I think it's on Spotify too. So recommended. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, um, one last question. If people want to find you online, where do they go? Do you have a blog or Twitter or what, what are the best places there? Sure. You can find me on, on Twitter and GitHub. What's your handle? Uh, T-Param. T-E-E-P-A-R-H-A-M. Oh, that's easy. 
And Daniel, do you want to remind us where to find you? Yeah, you can uh, find me on my blog, uh, daniel-azuma.com. And I'm also on GitHub uh, as the D-A-Z-U-M-A. Awesome. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you both for coming and talking through this with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.